Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, and I'm here with Ben, Sully, Will, and three special guests who will be introduced later. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. On Monday, May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, an African-American man in his 40s, was killed while in police custody in Minneapolis, Minnesota. These scenarios have become all too familiar, with numerous generations of black families being able to share first-hand stories similar to this one. In fact, only a few months earlier, in February, Ahmaud Aubrey, an unarmed 25-year-old man, was viciously gunned down in the streets, a scene that resembled a chase of an escaped slave. This has sparked outrage across the country and in other cities across the world. For centuries, the black community has experienced systemic racism and discrimination, particularly at the hands of whites, who have been in a historical position of power still to this day. Black men disproportionately experience negative outcomes when interacting with police, but we wanted to highlight that black women are also overrepresented in police violence. They are also mothers, sisters, aunts, partners, and friends of these male victims. To discuss this complex issue, we've invited three special guests. Linda is a public health professional based in Calgary, Alberta, with experience in patient advocacy, health promotion, and suicide prevention. She's passionate about working towards health equity, particularly in racialized communities, through addressing systemic barriers and challenging accepted norms. Rose Marcellin is a senior public health analyst working in emergency preparedness and response. She's also the founder of Focused Health Collective, an LLC and initiative for people of color that aims to re-examine the ways in which we engage with and understand public health. Tanadli Golding-Walker is a registered pharmacy technician who's passionate about issues of homelessness and mental health care access for vulnerable people. She's also my dear wife. So welcome to the discussion, everyone. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to be here. Hi. <laughs> she's, like, she's, like, she's like, I have to listen to this guy all the time, whatever. <laughs> okay, so when we hear the names, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Trayvon Martin, Corey Wise, and the rest of the Central Park Five who were wrongfully convicted, and so on and so on, countless others, we can all empathize with them first as human beings, but we have to discuss what racism is. So if, if, if you would like to share an experience or um, maybe even a definition of what does the word racism mean to you? And um, we can start with um, Rose and go around. And if you, if you don't feel like answering right away, um, you can pass. Um, yeah, no pressure. Uh, hey. So <laughs> I just immediately think of my first encounter with racism. Um, Growing up, I'm from Haiti, where the majority of the population is black and didn't really encounter any race issues until I moved to the States. Um, But in particular, I remember being in middle school, so about 12 years old, and doing a project with a church group. And we had to go into rural Tennessee. We're putting together a vacation Bible school summer camp type thing. 
and we went to you know door to door to invite families over um, to send their kids to VBS with us and that was the first time you know I op somebody opened the door um, and they were like oh what are these ends doing here mm -hmm. um, and I'll never forget that moment because I've never been called that I didn't mm -hmm. like I, of course you knew you were different here in the states right there's black people there's white people there's all kinds of people mm -hmm. um, but that mm -hmm. was the first time I realized that people judged me because of how mm -hmm. I looked um, so when I think of racism that memory usually comes to, to the forefront for me so yeah, there, there's elements there of just feeling uncomfortable in a place or at a certain time, feeling that it's people are out to emphasize some differences that don't have anything to do with your character and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll go next. So um, I've experienced um, you know racism at you know several points in my life. Um, I think it's interesting that you pointed to being originally from Haiti because I. I'm originally from Jamaica, and when you're in a majority black country, so to speak, you don't you don't experience that same type of racism where um, a country's overwhelmingly white, for example. So I think the Caribbean black experience is different from other black experiences with racism. So for my in my instance, it was similar. I didn't experience anything until I um, moved to Canada. And I've, you know, people spat at me. Um, I've had um, people discriminate against me for wearing a hoodie. You know, are you here to rob a store? So I've, I've, and then everyone gets those little microaggressions. Where are you from? Where are you really from? So it's like, you want me to say Africa? If you already knew that, then you didn't need to ask me where I'm from. So that's just, in a nutshell, that's my experience. I think for me, when I think about racism, it's, important to emphasize it's not always that like um intentionally violent type of encounter and um you know I was born in Canada my parents immigrated here um and so I've never known what it's like to be in an environment where you I guess are not different or where you are the majority and so like thinking back to my first encounter of racism it wasn't violent it wasn't somebody intentionally trying to harm me but the impact was still harm and I remember like I was six or seven maybe and, um, and we were in a grocery store and it was in an area where they did not have a lot of diversity mm. so um, it was explained to me after the encounter that actually we were the only black people in that area and we were just there for a visit and I remember we were in the grocery store and a little girl um, started screaming. She said, look, mommy, look, there's black kids, there's black kids. And she was pointing at us. Mm -hmm. And I just wow. remember feeling shame. Like my face felt so worn. And I remember thinking, I'm different and it's a bad thing. But someone observing could have been like, oh, she's just a kid. She didn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And I think in the general population, it's hard to conceive of that action as harm or as racism so it's important to highlight that we also need to talk about the impact and mm. it did cause harm i'm going to start with 
kind of my understanding and just my I'll give a couple of definitions of when I think of the terms racism, prejudice and discrimination because I think they're the these three terms are very closely related and they kind of build upon one another. So when I hear racism, um, I understand it as a belief that an individual's race is the primary determining factor of that individual's I guess capacities and capabilities. And that the belief of racism is that people think racial differences are used to distinguish whether someone is superior or inferior to another person. Mm. For me, prejudice is a preconceived notion or opinion like that, that is not based on reason. That is just purely based on God knows whatever source that information comes from. And lastly, discrimination. Um, I understand it as the unjust treatment of people on the grounds of any kinds of differences. So this can be age, sex, gender, race, etc., etc. And so when I think of these three terms, racism to me is the way of thinking and the belief that an individual holds, whereas mm. prejudice and discrimination, I tend to classify them as the actions that stem from racism. Mm. And I, I, I would like to share... I guess my personal experience um, with this topic. And I think it's pretty timely given right now because um, you know there's still the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And this kind of happened this past February. And honestly, I think when I think back to all the racist moments um, and racist, racist encounters that I've had in my life, this for some reason stands out because I would say it's one of the few times where I've felt genuine anger and also mm. just disgust in, I guess, myself and also just something that I cannot control. Um, so what happened was I was com- I was going from Toronto, on t- uh, Canada, t- back to Ottawa, Canada, um, after visiting some family and friends. And this was right near the beginning of when WHO had announced COVID-19 as a public health event of international concern. And and so I was here sitting on the train by the window seat with an open aisle seat beside me. And I remember clearly that a gentleman came in and was about to sit down. And you know it, was, it wasn't a pretty, it wasn't a super full train at that time. But anyways, he called over one of the the workers and he was like hey um excuse me i was wondering if i can get a again change my seat and then i i started looking at him and the worker was like oh sir like what's what's wrong is is something is this the wrong seat and he was like and no joke his exact words were oh you know with the whole current coronavirus thing going on you know it's you never want to be too care too careful and then he's and then he like had like a little little like nervous little chuckle kind of mm-hmm. thing and i just I just looked at him and I was like, buddy, you realize that just because you're sitting beside a Chinese person doesn't mean that you're going to get coronavirus. Mm. And, and he, you know, instantly he came, tried to defend himself. Oh, you know, it's uh no, no, no. It's cause I'm sick. I don't want to get you, get you sick. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, man, it's, I think it's just at, the, at that moment, I've never felt so uncomfortable because I think being a visible minority I guess I'm sure I'm sure we've all had the thoughts and just that that feeling that people you know are talking about us behind our backs, mm-hmm. um, talking about us based you know based because of whether it's our our cultural practices or you know just even the way we talk. But having someone say that say that 
right to your face in just such a public um, space. I think it's, I was both embarrassed, but also angry and just so many emotions flying at me at the same time. Yeah, that's a, I think if you know me at all, you know, I don't like definitions. I think academics try to find different words for things that don't have any meaningful differences in my opinion. But in this case, it is an important distinction because when you call someone a racist, for example, right? If you are a racist, and, and, and this is my belief of what the word means, racist doesn't mean that you actively participated in any act to deliberately hurt someone. Racist can mean you can sit up in your house, have beliefs about certain groups of people, and then you don't act on any of those beliefs. So people think a racist is someone who's, who didn't hire you for a job because you're black or Asian or, you know, or any other ethnic minority. You know, that's that's a form of discrimination. Racism is just any perception of or idea you've had in your head about someone being different or inferior because of the color of their skin or whatnot. That is a thought of racism. So I think um, it's important to make that distinction because the word racist or racism or is being thrown around out there as if, you know, if you've had a racist thought, you're an irredeemable person and you there's no hope for you in life. And I think I'm I'm really cautious about the attack on people who aren't ethnic minorities now because they have to be held accountable for things they've done. But we can't simply throw people in jail because, you know, all of us have learned the history books were written by the dominant um, race at the time. So it, these beliefs are taught. So we have to understand that part of the system, at least. So, Gordon, you raised a good point in the sense that um, racism and discrimination is all taught. And I wanted to share that, you know, it's very much institutionalized racism from white people. But also, from my experience, that institutionalized racism is also evident within Asian cultures. So, for example, I'm South Asian. And a lot of the racism that I've seen and experienced has been on your color of your skin. So, for example, they'd be like, oh, you are of darker skin. Why are you so dark? You have to be light-skinned. You have to bring yourself to this white culture or vision of beauty. And there's a lot of microaggressions within my culture in the sense of even the media that they produce where you'll have like those Bollywood movies or those dance numbers. And if you look at it, the, the two main brown people are extremely light-skinned through makeups and special effects. And if you get the backup dancers, they're all white people. There is no multiculturalism going on. It doesn't make any sense to me. So it's unfortunate that it's not just these institutions created by white people, but it's also inside our own ethnic minorities that we have to have these difficult conversations with ourselves and acknowledge, hey, we're not as great as we think we are. And there's a lot of work to be done here. Mm, that's a good point, Ben, because in Jamaica, there's something that people do called bleaching. And bleaching mm -hmm. is, is a chemical, and I'm sh I heard the mm-hmms, so I'm sure you guys agree. <laughs> um, they, and what it is, is people put chemicals on their skin. So people, I can speak for people, you know, black Jamaicans, put chemicals on their skin to have an appearance of being lighter. Because it is perceived across the world that being lighter makes you more desirable or better. So even within these cultures, Ben, that you're you're mentioning, it's almost like a brainwashing happened that because you're this color, you are mm. inferior. In, inferior. So this message yep. is even resonating with the people that are being oppressed. I think those are great points that 
Ben and Gordon, you've highlighted, and it shows that it's not necessarily somebody saying, you know, I'm choosing right now to be racist. And mm. I think when someone hears the word racist, it's like an attack on their morals or on their character. And I personally think if we could move away from that and move mm. into a space where we're like, actually, everybody is racist. Like right. we've all been, mm. we're all part of a system that um, perpetuates this idea that darker is inferior mm. and I'm part of that too. I have internalized anti-blackness too mm. because I'm mm. a product of this system and I can admit that not to you know glorify it but to say it exists so how do I also participate in being anti-racist? All right so I guess my next thing that I want to talk about because we're kind of dissecting the whole issue of racism discrimination and prejudice so the straw that bro- broke the camel's back essentially was the pr- police brutality and killing of George Floyd. So does racism start and end with the police? And you know, you just jump in if you have a comment on that. So I think that it doesn't begin and end with police. I think can't remember who has said it, but it is one of those things where it begins at home because police officers it's not like they're you know born and just have these thoughts this is something that was taught to them um, that they grew up with and then even within the workplace Mm. um, it's something that's shared and then everybody else acts on it as well so the police officers that were arresting George Floyd uh, not all of them were white so we have to remember that Mm. Um, and the police officers that were not white, it's not like they were willing to jump in and say something to prevent this from happening. Um, mm. However, I think that it was a culture within the workplace mm. um, that there are certain ethnicities to target more mm. than others. And um, I was reading that two of them, they're still new to the job. And they didn't even feel comfortable enough to step in and say something or do something. So I don't think that it's something that police officers are just born with that thought. I think that it's just a culture within the workplace. Um, And I think that goes for many other jobs as well. Mm -hmm. Even healthcare in Canada, um, certain ethnicities are not treated the same as others. So I don't think it's just police. I think that the police right now is just the loudest thing that's happening, why people are paying attention and, you know, anti-police brutality. But there's other professions that also have the same kind of mentality as to how to treat certain people. Yeah, so from what you're saying, racism is a learned attitude and you can learn this at home, learn it in your neighborhood, learn in your community. And if the scales are tipped so that a cert- if you're of a certain race, such as being white, puts you in a position to run these structures, these the healthcare systems, criminal justice, when these people are running these systems, then you that's where you get the institutional uh, racism. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and add to that when I think about um, police and race and racism. I think of the police force, the law enforcement as 
just one of many systems that have a history of holding up or supporting the majority population. Um, I think it's history that's been passed down, you know, to keep certain people from attaining certain things. Um, so I think it goes beyond just the police. I think about the judicial, you know, the court systems and what that looks like or education history, at least here in the States, where the system wasn't built for people of color to succeed. Um, and though progress, and I'm using air quotes here, um, you know, has been made, that history is so ingrained um, in policies and the way things are done that it manifests itself, you know, so violently to, you know, what we saw in the last, you know, last week. Um, so I think it goes beyond just the police as an institution, but all of these different systems that, that guide society and how we live. And that's a that's an important point, because I don't think if you're the, you know, on the outside looking in, people don't understand that um, the black experience, so to speak. And I know there's a lot of diversity within the black community. And I acknowledge that 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 is the case. But from the, the general black experience, you know, some communities when black people see cops, it's not a safe and comforting sight. It means that something wrong is about to happen. As opposed to other neighborhoods, maybe more affluent and maybe, you know, maybe from a different ethnicity, such as white, they get a different emotion when they see police officers. And this is kind of the cycle of um, mistrust and um, police brutality against um, regular civilians, because when this stuff, you know, we have cell phones and cameras now to document a lot of these things and you know that's social media does have some good elements to it in this case but there in in previous history these stuff weren't recorded so you can imagine someone going to say hey i was you know assaulted by a police officer and there's no evidence to support it and how that must make them feel so i think we just have to realize too that again we're everyone's upset right now but this is there's really been no change other than technology has advanced in such a way that regular people can capture and give people a voice that's a good point about technology but a a notion or a nuance to that is that if you're just breaking out your phone and you're in a one-on-one confrontation they could easily just destroy your phone and be like oh that never happened that oh that that is that that is true that is true it's just that that opportunity wasn't there um Mm. when i talk to um you know, people in my family who've lived here, um, close friends and their experience with the police. It's almost like, you know, the secret family re- recipe that no one knows about. It's like no one knew about these experiences. So at least, you know, having the ability, even you, your, you know, the George Floyd case, there was many, several people recording it. So it gave, you know, there was a lot of opportunity to ensure that this situation was going to be known by the general public. You're not going to be able, you're not going to be in that position every time, but just to know that um, people are kind of looking out and seeing, um, because it, put put it this way, if there was trust between police and the community in general, I don't think anyone would be pulling out their phone when police were interacting with people, right? So it's just, it's, it's because there's like, whenever a police has a black man in custody, Something's going to go down, so I'm going to pull out my phone. So that's that's literally what it comes down to. Well, I just wanted to say that um, I think the point that Gordon talked about with the the idea of the filming, 
I think it's, I mean, at least for me, what I got from that point is that, especially with the topic of police brutality, it's not like it's a brand new issue. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that with technology now, people are able to film it, people are able to record it, and there's a, it's actually available on record. And I think that's just that just shows how previously, before any of this technological advancement were available, I'm sure the police were doing the same mm-hmm. things, you know, um, there's still that that same level of inequalities just existing, but there just there just wasn't any mm-hmm. evidence. It's it's called mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it, it makes you think about you know how many other George Floyd's there's there's been um, mm-hmm. across time in history who don't have the video evidence, you know, to fight for them. Um, that piece about technology being so important. Um, even just, you know, I had a conversation with my brother and his, his thing is if, you know, he gets stopped by the police, he's pulling out his phone and just documenting that, that interaction. And it's almost a a feeling of like something you have to do because you think about how quickly and how easily, um, these incidents get covered up. We recently had something happen a couple of days ago, um, here in the States where during one of the protests, not here in D.C., I don't believe, but um, there were, uh, you know, a line of police officers or guards or I'm not sure they were National Guard or whoever, uh, but uh, an older white guy mm. walked up to them and he was pushed and he fell to the ground and started bleeding from his ear. Uh, but the official report said that he tripped and fell. And if not for cell phone footage, we wouldn't have known what really happened. So mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, one instance like that, um, how many more are there um, mm-hmm. that we don't know where it might be ruled an accidental death or accidental injury or something, but we, we don't know. So, yeah, on, one, on the same spectrum, we have a concept called um, white privilege. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because and there's so many things like I can't even follow the news to know, you know, what happened today. Guess what happened today? Another, it's it's a bit overwhelming, to be honest with you. Um, so I rightfully or wrongfully, I have to tune out for my own mental health. Um, but it feels like yesterday there was a situation with this um, white woman, Amy Cooper, who, you know, called the police on an African-American man who was telling her to leash her dog. And this is my subjective opinion. It appeared that she was trying to um, communicate to the 911 dispatcher that in some way she was being in, in imminent danger of being threatened by this this man. And I I have this conversation with my friends. I think the intent here was for to, to teach this guy a lesson. Like, don't mess with white people because the police are going to come and they're going to hurt you. When I saw the video, I, I agree with you on that. I think also what struck me was a sense of awareness where I immediately thought, oh, she knows exactly what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't a moment of fear or, I, or I'm just going to say something like, no, this is this is calculated. And in my opinion, she understood the power of mm. a white woman's words mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. against a black man. And so that's what made the video even more vile to me. When you think about American history, Emmett Till and, you know, Till. the mm-hmm. words of a, a white woman, um, mm-hmm. you know, cuts toward his life. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that privilege that comes with being a white woman in America, um, it exists. And, and, she, and she used that as a weapon um, with, that, with, that, with that phone call. Ugh, it's, it's so disgusting to me when I, when I think about it and yeah. just hearing the inflection in her voice and how that changed. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, she knew there was a leash law in the park. So to me, it's, it's almost calculated in that right. in that regards, which which makes it even even worse. What about the the aftermath when she was doing interviews and oh my gosh. Um, different networks <laughs> and saying that now her life is ruined and oh, of course. no, she can't move <laughs> forward. God. And it's like I still don't think that it has set in with her that her actions could have been worse for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine if this gentleman wasn't reporting mm-hmm. what was happening, what was being said, and the police had showed up, like what would have been the end of that story? So I don't even think that she feels bad or recognizes that what she did was wrong because now she's on TV saying, woe is me. You know what that reminds me? I'm sorry to get into the world of sports, but... You know, Drew Brees is a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. And he was essentially asked his thoughts on protesting during, if, you know, when the NFL does come back. Sorry if I'm I'm paraphrasing. When NFL does come back, how would he feel if, you know, African American athletes or their um, teammates uh, protested during the national anthem? And then you all knew, you all know what he said about. In my opinion, it's a disrespect to the flag, blah, blah, blah. And it, there's not a lot of connection here, but the point I'm trying to make is there's there's this element of selfishness here and entitlement um, that prevents you from seeing what's right in front of you. And I think that's what the commonalities are in the situation. Even though she was reprimanded, she's, okay, what about me? And, that, you know, we're not we're not talking about you. We're talking about how can you look at, this guy who has a you know imagine like a guy with his knee in your neck on the pavement and then you want to talk about you and you want to talk about your grandfather's fighting for the flag and blah 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 when there was still segregation and all that stuff so it just shows a lack of awareness um intentionally i call this willful ignorance and this self level of selfishness. I know Will's been dying to talk about Drew Brees. <laughs> oh man, yeah. go for it. Yeah. So when I first heard that comment that he made about um, how you know it's disrespecting the flag and and all that stuff, it's exactly what Gordon said. I think the 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 key word there is entitlement, right? It's he doesn't see it as individuals fighting for their rights and their freedoms and if that you know the flag i'm, I'm assuming it's supposed to represent i guess the, mm. the values mm-hmm. there you know rights freedom um liberty all that stuff that i'm not sure exactly what the <laughs> the, the, the u.s uses but anyways like th- those those key tenants that the country was built on if those tenants are so important to you and that you're saying that oh you know don't don't be disrespecting those um the flag don't be disrespecting what the country is built on you're literally being like the hypocrite because these people here are fighting for even the possibility to have that freedom. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I've been seeing articles left, right, and where it's just saying like he completely missed the mark on that one because he just seems to not understand why the people are actually protesting 
and like why these athletes like like Kaepernick, you know, were dropping on the knees. Right. It's it's literally to stop and to actually just raise awareness and f- just for to show people that this is actually going on and that there needs to be change done. Right. It's almost like he was saying okay, America has been good to me, so I really don't have a problem. So I'm not sure what the big deal is. That's how, When you read between the lines, that's how you interpret it. But then for you not to be aware, you know, you, you're a military family and historian, blah, blah, blah. You're the, pe- the black people that fought beside your grandparents in the army. And not really beside because it was potentially segregated at the time. Yeah. They came mm-hmm. home to a different kind of welcome. And you're saying you were okay with that because your family lived and prospered. And that there's it's just a blatant disregard for the plight of um the you know black people and other um ethnic minorities. The purpose of having these conversations is to raise awareness of the current struggles of visible minorities with an emphasis on the black community in terms of police brutality and systemic racism in the United States, but also all around the world. We've discussed some of the dangers of social media in our previous episodes, but it can also be used for good, to record important moments in history that have been erased in previous centuries. The old saying goes, seeing is believing, and this has given birth to numerous protests around the world. This has been part one of the State of the Union Roundtable series, Racism, the Black Experience, and the Perpetual Fight for Equality. Stay tuned for part two in this two-part series, where we'll continue our discussion about the movement and what we can do to make anti-racism the status quo. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.